Welcome. You're listening to a UC Davis Center for Poverty Research conference podcast. I'm the center's director, Ann Stevens. In November 2013, the center hosted the conference, The Affordable Care Act and Low-Income Populations, Lessons From and Challenges for Research. The conference featured top healthcare experts from across the country to discuss the rollout of the Affordable Care Act and what the new system means for poverty in the United States. In this panel discussion, moderator Joy Melnico, director of the Center for Healthcare Policy and Research, and panelists Ron Chapman, Neil Koatsu, Robin Ephraim, and Chris Srinivasan consider how academic research might contribute to successful implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Ron Chapman is the director of the California Department of Public Health. Neil Koatsu is the medical director of the California Department of Healthcare Services. And Chris Srinivasan is a practicing medical doctor for the UC Davis Health System and for Communicare Health Centers. Um, Well, I can speak for community health centers um, and a little bit for hospitals. Um, We, as an FQHC, we get an enhanced rate for uh, Medi-Cal, for Medicaid, and um, even for Medicare a little bit. And we also get a federal grant. And so um, it's exactly what Chris said. Um, If we can, for us, we always say it's about our payer mix. If we have enough of of people that are covered, um, it absolutely um, helps us provide uh, uncompensated care for the undocumented. Um, we do ask for a sliding fee scale, um, and it, it, it depends on your family size and income, what you pay on the scale. But if they can't pay, we see them. Um, hospitals um, tend to have uh, charity or community benefits. So, um, and depending on how sick a patient is, they have to be seen in the hospital. Um, the real problem, I think, is with specialty care access. Because um, when it's it's sometimes difficult if you have Medi-Cal to find a specialist. It's sometimes difficult if you have great insurance to find a specialist. But if you're uninsured, it's very, very difficult. And that that really is a problem. What happens is a lot of people just wait and they get very sick and they go to the emergency room and then they get seen in the hospital. Um, It is also um, medications. Um, if you're uninsured, it's lab tests, x-rays. Uh, we do have a um, prescription assistance program, um, which we work with the pharmaceutical companies to get medications for uninsured. That actually does work pretty well, but, um, yeah, it's a problem. It's, it's an issue. We, that's a good question. So um, we think that the way that we're paid will remain for the next few years. Um, but um, I, we also believe that um, it's going to be much more based on pay for performance. And um, there may be uh, ways to look at payment for FQHCs that isn't based on a, a per-visit reimbursement, but is based on uh, quality incentives, capitation. That, that may actually change. I mean, not, maybe not in the next five years, but soon. Sometimes they're not. 
not, and I know that they're not generously funded, and you know, they only cover part of the care, but how does that, how does that figure out? I mean, I, I don't know how it's structured here in this county and whether the FQHCs get, get some of that or whether it's all for the hospitals, but I guess post-ACA or ACA implementation, how, how, how do those county indigent care programs kind of figure in So I'll, I'll answer a little bit, and I think Ron can, and Ron talked about it a little bit. Um, again, it's about funding um, post-ACA. Um, the LIP programs, um, there has been for many, many years a program called CMSB, County Medical Services Program, and that was, it's run through the state, and mostly the rural counties in California have participated, and Yellow County is one, and that's with the LIP program. So those, um, those people uh, under 100% of poverty were on the LIP program, Path to Health, ready to be enrolled into Medi-Cal. And then there's those other people that make a little more that were sometimes on CMSP, sometimes weren't, back and forth. Um, but um, the, and so the counties, the counties had a lot more money then. But just like Ron said, um, the theory was from the state's perspective that the counties are not going to need all that money. Um, and I think, I think in Yolo County, um, they retained 30%. The state took 70% back of that funding because the theory is, well, everybody's going to be, everyone's going to be covered. So you're just going to need money for some public health. And, well, we know that's not true. We know there's going to be a lot of uh, uninsured. And um, in the CMSB program throughout the state, the undocumented were not, are not eligible. So I mentioned the Section 17,000. I mean, that is unique to California, and that's in state law, and that puts a responsibility for indigent medical care on each county. But how each county interprets that law, it, it varies. And so you, you have some counties that um, have a certain political sway where they're just refusing to take care of undocumented. They, won't, they don't think the law applies to those folks. And others that have a very completely opposite interpretation. So uh, unfortunately, I, I don't know of a single database that would track the changes moving forward because it, it's so fragmented in that way. It really is variable from one county to the next. The CMSB program, which is her report from someone who works for them, um, will only be—they're losing—will be losing 90% of all of the patients that they've been covering. So, CMSB program um, is the program that would exist in the counties um, to help uh, the people that there. There are some people that are citizens that are still, still will still be eligible for CMSP, but not so 10%. I mean, there's not going to be very much. And um, I mean, there is emergency Medi-Cal for very, very sick 
um, um, undocumented people, as we heard, but. Um, and, and of course, CMSP is what, 32 or some, it's not all the it's counties. It's not all the and state. And it's, it's, it's only the smaller counties. Mm -hmm. Rural county. You were referring to the FQHC uh, or community health center. I mean, I, that's clearly a critical part of the, the Medi-Cal network. And, um, you know, Robin, you were alluding to people are looking for different ways of reimbursement and how to you know, pay for performance is something that we hear from CMS all the time in all aspects, inpatient, outpatient care. So. Um, it's a very dynamic time, but clearly you're, you're right. It's a key part of the network for a lot of reasons, closeness to the community, cultural competency skills, uh, for a lot of reasons. And uh, what's going to be the hard part is kind of working through the reimbursement, dealing with the expansion, at the same time trying to advance quality as, you know, we're dealing with all the kind of day-to-day uh, uh, -day and real-world challenges that uh, Robin and Chris talked about, but uh, it's clearly going to continue to be an important, you know, backbone part of the safety net. Ron? Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, well, I, I ran a couple of FQHCs in Solano counties, so, and as a family doc, was seeing patients every week in those clinics. I was also the chief medical officer for Partnership Health Plan, the Medi-Cal managed care health plan that was mentioned, and I was able to go out and visit practices in the very large network. And, you know, there are a lot of practices out there that in the health plan we call singles and doubles, like tennis. These are, are docs that are onesie, twosie. They're out there by themselves, some in communities in a neighborhood, in a, in a house converted into a clinic. And there, there's, there are a lot of folks in practice like that especially in rural areas, and they are just not equipped to do electronic health records, let alone the coordinated care and community outreach that a community health center can do. So I, I think community health centers are, are well positioned to take advantage of all the changes going on under ACA, definitely. In the back. As someone who has worked in the free clinics, uh, JVMC, Tapati, Imani, and I was 
medical director at Tapati at one point. Um, it's not really going to change because I think that that's really the population that those clinics have been focused on this whole time. Um, the challenges will be the same. I mean, it's not... The undocumented can get, you know, basic... They can see doctors in free clinics and in our clinics. The, the problem is really what if they have issues that need, you know, imaging, specialty care... That's really the limitation. What, what would be great, I think, for the free clinics, and they do this to some extent uh, already, is to expand, you know, because really the, the, the medical students and the residents work in these clinics to learn. And so if you can reach out to specialty, you know, have a cardiology day once a month where the cardiology fellows come and bring their ultrasound and do echocardiograms and... I know neurology has clinics at Tapati, that sort of thing. That, that really helps a lot because at least you have this sort of internal, you know, internal specialty referral system. That, and then, you know, if you get them to see a cardiologist and they're compelled by the story, they have friends, you know, maybe stuff happens. Um, so, you know, it's really sort of grassroots medicine in that way. But uh, I think, you know, that's, that's something I've always... I've always wanted to do more of at the free clinics. Can I just say one thing, too? I, um, I think the use of telemedicine, actually, that for too, specialty yeah. care access, particularly particularly since you're part of the university, um, yeah. we, um, uh, Communicare participates in UC uh, Davis Rural Prime, and because we, uh, two of our physicians teach in that program, and because um, we do that. We we have they have given us um, telemedicine equipment for our three primary care sites. The issue for us is that we don't have always have specialists on the other end. But I think for you and telemedicine isn't isn't just distance. It's act. It's different kinds of access. So um, we we had a grant at one time um, at which went away, which is too bad. Where we had access to specialists. Um, throughout all of the UC medical medical schools, so I th- we had neurology. I think that was UC Irvine was neurology. Mm-hmm. I forget what, what UCSF. I forget what specialty we had there, but we had specialists. Really, it was great access and a, and a number at UC Davis. But maybe that's something you could work out and figure out because some docs really like that that uh, form of um, providing specialty care. Okay. <laughs> I, I think it's certainly a possibility, and there certainly would be motivation for for folks and their families. I just don't know of any data. That, right, I, I don't know of any studies that would show whether that's happening or not. Here's a good research question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think actually, what I what I heard. I'm not sure. I don't know if I heard it. Um, 
on NPR, and I always believe NPR, but I, there was a, um, I <laughs> there was, um, uh, it had a lot, had, more had to do with the economy. When the economy was really bad, a lot of undocumented people went home. They went back to whatever country, Mex mostly Mexico, but it was easier to get a job there than it was here. But the, the economy's picking up again, so we may see more people coming over for jobs. Yeah, I mean, so is yeah. So, so is the Mexican government. It's picking up. Yeah. I mean, my, my sense is that the undocumented aren't here for services. They're here for jobs. Yeah. So yeah, I don't it's really, think... Uh, it's really about the, the economy. Yeah. I mean, there was the, you know, those rumors that people were crossing, women were crossing the border uh, between Mexico and San Diego to have babies so they'd be born in California. I don't believe that for a minute. Oh, I do. You do? Yeah. Oh, really? Is that really? We, we, when I was I don't, here, I don't, I, don't, know. I, don't, I don't believe it. We, we used I, don't to, believe I did L and D in, in, in Stockton, and that happened all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'd go home. Yeah, they go home. Oh, okay. I was wrong. But that's. <laughs> so, that's but there is actually. A, <laughs> there, there is actually. There is the opposite. Um, direction migration for healthcare also. So this is more the case in Southern California, especially around San Diego. But um, Mexico actually has a more comprehensive healthcare than um, the United States has had until now. Mexico went to uh, expanded uh, coverage for their low-income folks uh, probably about eight years ago, 10 years ago. And so there are a number of people who work in Southern California, especially around San Diego, who when they need serious health care, they go home to Mexico, and then they'll come back to work. But um, anyway, that, so it, it actually works in both directions. Also for dental care, I think that's true, which mm -hmm. is, is a, you know, the unspoken, nobody covers kind of thing. So it, it happens both directions. So it would be fascinating to study. I think it would be very hard to get the data. Yeah. So yeah, that between states you could study that. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah. Robin, um, you showed a slide that gave a profile of the seven thousand or so patients that are uninsured that you're seeing in your clinic or your system, and I thought I saw that um, almost half of those were. Um, individuals who, under the current eligibility uh, uh, regulations, would be eligible but not enrolled in Medicaid, and that that number was actually larger than the number of the uninsured who would be newly eligible. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, well, that's how it broke down when we looked at the numbers, but I don't I, I don't think all of those people are actually going to enroll. But the biggest, the biggest number, and I actually really do believe this, I, this, it, it may even be larger, um, is the number of people that um, will be eligible January 1st under expanded Medi-Cal from, from 100 to 138 percent of poverty. That is the core of people we have been seeing for years and years and years that are uninsured. And these are citizens. This is not undocumented. So I, that, that is... And other health centers are saying the same thing. That is a really large percentage of our current patients that we're seeing that, that should be eligible uh, uh, to get Medi-Cal January 1st. So I, I must have read your slide wrong. There, there weren't a larger number of... No, that was, that was about 1,800. That was about half that actually are eligible today for the under 100% of poverty. They just have fallen off. It's hard. 
used to be on, but didn't go back for their eligibility. Colin? So on, on a related question, there'll be movement, I mean, there always has been movement in and out of Medicaid. Mm -hmm. right. Under the new system, do we expect there to be more movement in and out of people being eligible for Medicaid and the subsidized insurance and back again? And is that a, an issue? Well, well um, actually, one of the really good things is that eligibility um, renewal is just going to be annually now under the new Medi-Cal rather than uh, twice a year or quarterly. So the more often people have to go in to renew their, their Medi-Cal, the more often they fall off. So there should be a lot more continuity now that they only have to renew once a year. When you say they renew once a year, that's an annual income test for Yes. Yes. This is, I can only speak to California. Is that really different though, right? You're talking about people bouncing between like 120 and 140 and 120 and 140. Yes. Yeah, and that'll help. And, and I was going to say, and that, that, will, that does happen. That but really does happen. It has to do with their work. Right now, if they bounce um, every three months, um, I think it is, every three or four months, uh, they can lose coverage. And so it sounds like now, the, once they're on, they're on for a year, even if their income is moving up and down. And right. so the, that should smooth things out a bit because, so, and it seems like that's a, a wise choice since you can only enroll in covered California once a year. If you fall off Medi-Cal in the middle of the year, then you're uninsured for six months. So. And that's really good for continuity of care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, well it's, it's good for continuity of care if the, if the FQHC, if your FQHC is going to be in, in the exchange. So this is the expanded Medi-Cal. Okay. And I, I, thought he was talking, no, I thought he was talking about people who move. Well, there's two issues. One is access oh. to care, and the other one is access to care for the same people. So, so that, that is very true, and um, it's very individual by the FQHC whether we're going to enroll as providers in the insurance companies um, um, because they're a really bad payer for us, to be perfectly honest with you, like one of the worst payers. So um, we, um, which sounds funny to say, but it's true. Uh, um, oh yeah, we get we get a, we get an FQHC rate. Yes, and in the state of California, they said they're absolutely not going to do that. They don't care that it's in the law. They are not going to do it. So we, we decided, I, I decided in Communicare that we really should, we're going to be enrolled. So in Yolo County, there's four um, plans that are available. There's Anthem, Blue Cross, uh, PPO, and HMO. There's Blue Shield, PPO. There's Kaiser, and there's um, Western Health Advantage, which is just an HMO. So we decided for the first time in our history to actually enroll in a private insurance company. We have for dental. We do, have, we do take private insurance for dental. And we do take private insurance. We're just out of network. Um, not HMOs, but for PPOs. But we decided, and just because of what most of you are saying, it's, they're, they're, they're probably going to be our patients. They could be family members of our patients. And we don't want to lose them. We want it to be available so that they could continue to come to Communicare. But I don't, I think it's going to be a really small number. But we decided to do it. And so what they, what they, they're actually paying, um, 
individual um, physicians, it's the commercial rate, but under Covered California, in order to enroll um, as a provider in the health insurance um, and the companies, you actually are, they're going to be reimbursing less than they do for commercial. For FQHCs, they'll reimburse us commercial, but it's still a lot less than we get for Medi-Cal and Medicare. So is that going to be a problem for uh, getting other providers to sign up for these networks? Um, I assume we, that's also I think true for everybody. in Yolo County, Sutter and uh, Woodland Healthcare, which is Dignity, are going to be enrolling in not all of them. They're going to choose which they want. And then there's Kaiser. So there's always Kaiser. So <laughs> I don't know. What's the Med Center doing? I'm not sure. That's a good question. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, sure. Any other questions? All right. Well, thank you very much to our panel. That was really informative. I'm Ann Stevens, the director of the Center for Poverty Research at UC Davis, and I want to thank you for listening. The center is one of three federally designated poverty research centers in the United States. Our mission is to facilitate nonpartisan academic research on domestic poverty, to disseminate this research, and to train the next generation of poverty scholars. Core funding comes from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. For more information about the center, visit us online at poverty.ucdavis.edu.